Welcome to a new episode of Movie Schmovie. Um, we'll be talking a lot today, but before we get to that, I am Steve, and joining me is who else? Who else is there? Let me hear you. Let me hear those beautiful voices. I'm Ron. Hello. <laughs> and have you heard the news? I'm that guy named John. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting thrown off by these dramatic pauses. You know, I think it's like a safeguard so that we don't talk over one another, but then I'm falling for it because I'm like, wait, yeah, is, yeah. You, is, John is John still there? Is John still there? So yeah, it's good to get together, and uh, we're gonna catch up on some movies that we've uh, a few that we've all seen, a couple that a few of us have seen, but um, just to kind of do a little catch up, what's going on in the movie and TV world around us uh, over the past couple weeks. Hopefully, you've been able to check out our last episode where we had Lauren on to talk about the Scream franchise, um, you know, and where it took the horror genre back in the late '90s, and and kind of where. Maybe it'll go in the next couple of years when they try to get it going again. But if you haven't checked out that episode, please go back. Maybe when you're done listening to this one, download that one. It's 256 and, and give it a listen. It was a lot of fun to record. And, um, you know, hopefully you can listen to it and enjoy it as much as we did. This might be a big episode, too, although it's a bit more of a grab bag. It does feel kind of strange to get together and talk about movies at a time like this with, with all the um, troubling, inspiring, serious stuff that's happening yeah. in our country right now yeah uh, but we will do our best i can't promise our feelings won't come out um but i do know before we get to the movies that we watched for this episode we wanted to talk about a little bit of recent entertainment news um ronald you want to kick that off sure so um tribeca is backing the we are one uh global film festival because basically what happened was a bunch of mini uh film festivals got canceled and everything going on with COVID. And someone had the smart idea at Tribeca to kind of join these smaller festivals uh, into, it's like 21 festivals uh, all over the world, kind of bring together some of the best of those festivals into the We Are One Film Festival. It's about uh, eight days uh, and is all on YouTube, all free. Q&As from the directors, actors. Um, it is amazing, man. And I've, and I've been kind of engaging in some of the, the film watching. Um, it's free, so please watch some of these films. It's actually a 10-day festival. I thought it was eight. Um, and I think So it's happening right now. We're, we're recording on a Wednesday, and this episode's going to come out in two days. Will it still be going? Yes. And can you go back and watch films that have already aired, yeah, or is it something yeah, right, that happens right, live? Right now, you can go back. I don't know how long they're going to keep the films up, but yeah, um, I'm, I'm going back to day one and day two, and it's about day six or seven right now. It's incredible with the access that they're allowing uh, the casual film watcher to the, you know, the person that's obsessed with films. It's it's the same level of access that you would have gotten if you went to like Cannes or something like that. You're able to access the shorts, the Q and A's, the and these are full length films, commercial free. It's insane, man. I, I I've never seen anything like it. Um, and I've actually uh, I was let me one more thing. There's actually a film festival going on in Toronto that I gave some money to the Hot Docs Film Festival in uh, Calgary. I think it's Calgary. Uh, and I gave some money to see a uh, Baltimore-based uh, Baltimore Club documentary that's happening, that, that's being aired there. So, like, I, I think this level of access that we're getting during COVID is out of this world, man. And 
the We Are One Festival is a free one that you can engage in and suggest movies for friends. And uh, I'm, I, I'm, my mind is blown. So check it out. Well, so when when they're hearing this, they've got two days left. Is that right, or one day left? Two, Do you know what date actually it's it stops? Two days, and okay. yeah, it looks like they're still going to leave stuff up for a while, um, and you can go back and watch everything. Yeah, I did. I did see that. Um, I, I honestly have not really spent much time with the online festivals. Um, I plan to try to check out some of the stuff I had read about with the one that Ronald mentioned, the We Are One. I know there was a a couple of the conversation pieces that were scheduled on there. I think one was like. There was some with um, Bong Joon-ho and I think Steven Soderbergh and Coppola are doing like a conversation. Like some of that stuff is really interesting to me. Um, and there was a film called, I think it doesn't show until Saturday, I wanted to check out, called Air Conditioner that I heard a lot of yes. things about. Um, but those were the ones that kind of popped up and that I was going to try to catch. I think one was I, I actually missed last night, one of the conversations. But Saturday... I want to try to check out that uh, air conditioner film because I had read about that a couple weeks ago and it's popped up on a couple lists I've seen of the, uh, you know, like, make sure you check this out during this festival. So that's definitely on my radar. Um, I just, a part of the We Are One festival, I watched this film called uh, Crazy World, um, which is, uh, there's a Ugandan film group uh, that prefers, uh, that refers to themselves as Wakaliwood. And they film these like very cheap um, action films. Crazy World is one of the craziest movies I've ever seen in my life. Don't don't go into it looking at the trailer. The 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 less you know about it, the better. Just know that it is absurd. It, it's just like layers and layers of crazy. And I, just a little spoiler: there's advertisements for other movies within the movie. So <laughs> it's it's insane. So. Um, I really enjoyed that one. I'm probably going to rewatch it. It's it's that that entertaining. So, um, the thing I wanted to bring up as a news item is just I guess it's kind of twofold. One is that HBO Max uh, had its debut since we last uh, caught up, and also that the the thing that we've talked about on the show before, so it deserves a follow up, right? That the Snyder Cut is <laughs> is it's coming. Happening. Um, if, if anyone doesn't know what that is, I mean, look up any of the numerous articles about it. But basically, the Snyder Cut is Zack Snyder, the original director of the Justice League movie that was a, a real mixed bag even once it came out. But Zack Snyder left production midway in because of a personal tragedy. And Joss Whedon came in, and it made big news at the time because he had been a Marvel guy before that. He came in and finished uh, the movie, directing it, and, and did a polish on the script. And a lot of people said that the movie that came out was sort of a an ungodly amalgam of what Zack Snyder was trying to do with what Whedon was doing seemingly at the behest of the studio. Is all of this ringing true to you guys? Yeah, yeah. So the movie hits theaters, and when people don't love it, there's a lot of talk about, well, maybe maybe the Snyder Cut was this brilliant thing that was suppressed, you know? <laughs> <laughs> These entitled fans who just won't shut up, and the release the Snyder Cut hashtag became such a thing that I was just tired of it because it seemed to me like a crazy thing to demand or expect of of a studio. It's not a common thing for one of these kind of mythical edits of a movie to, to get released into theaters or to, to make the news like this, but this one just, 
never left people's minds. And what, what seemed like it might have been a DVD extra in another world is now going to be uh, a, a, probably a big event miniseries for HBO Max. That was a long intro to that idea. But what do you guys think of, um, I guess, HBO Max and how it came out, but also uh, the Snyder Cut? Uh, I mean, I think we all are going to watch it. We're curious. But yeah. beyond that, how do you feel? So HBO Max is something that I was kind of looking forward to and... You know, I was I was kind of on the fence about it, but then when we broke down what it was, um, I gave it a try. I'm actually using it right now. I've consumed about 50% of the original content. Um, so I've seen Not Not Too Late Show with Elmo, Love Life with Anna Kendrick, and the documentary on the record about the uh, record exec. Uh, her name is Drew Dixon, who had been assaulted a couple times in the music industry by uh, Men in Power. Uh, all three of those things are really, really pretty amazing. Um, I love what they're bringing to the table, but the original content is very sparse, um, especially coming out of the gate demanding $15 a month. Um, the Snyder Cut is something that I don't know if we've ever seen anything in our lifetime where the consumer has affected uh the, the outcome of some content in this way. Sure, we've heard things like being extended through, you know, uh, petitions and things like this, but something coming out like this has never, ever happened. And to see it being drawn out in the way that it's being drawn out, given this red carpet treatment, is really cool. Um, so that's what I, that's my initial thoughts about it. Uh, but as I guess as we talk about HBO Max and why I have some other opinions but what do, what do you guys think i mean honestly i haven't really done much with hbo max presume i mean just mainly because of what we were talking about last week is just that in most cases like i consume probably 80 to 90 percent of what i watch on a roku set top streaming box and um it's kind of bonkers to me that in the middle of like you know this peak streaming at home scenario that um I think the the box with the highest market share is like the box that it's not available on. And, you know, like I think it's the Roku set top and I think that even the Amazon ones, um, the fire sticks and everything, it's, it's not available yet because of, you know, contracts and licensing agreements or whatever they have um, to figure out. But I mean, so basically like I have the app and I kind of browse through the libraries and kind of was messing around with the uh, UI just to kind of see what I thought of it. I mean, I wasn't really impressed with the app itself on on my iPhone or my iPad. It seems, you know, kind of kind of just generic. It doesn't and you know, and a lot of these launches like when Netflix or Disney Plus even like first came out, like, you know, they're definitely going to work out the kinks and I get that, but I don't know. My my real experience so far has really just been kind of browsing through the catalog, which I mean, there's not a ton of original stuff yet, and like you know, you're Ronald, you're saying like what what you've watched seems interesting, and and you've watched most of them and you've enjoyed them, so that's that's reassuring. But um, I think really the thing that strikes me is is just the the deep library that it has, like whether it's TV yeah. shows or movies. You know, I think this time next month, if they work out the Roku stuff, and I can really start spending time watching it on my nice TV with nice sound, like going through their movie library is going to be quite the adventure. Cause I mean, they have a ton of movies in there um, that I'm super interested in and, you know, just going through and adding some of the great shows from HBO and, and some of the network shows that they have rights to, you know, to my library, just so I can kind of 
catch up with it when I want. I mean, it's pretty. It's a pretty. It's a pretty impressive library. I can say that. Um, but to be honest, I haven't had much experience. Uh, you know, actually streaming content from the app yet because I really haven't done that from my phone. I don't really watch much on my phone. Um, maybe my iPad every once in a while, but I haven't even done that. Um, because honestly, I've just been busy watching other stuff that I knew I'd watched. I wanted to watch beforehand. Um, which is kind of surprising to me because I, I kind of was really excited to kind of get in there and, and, and see what they had. But honestly, that Roku, that Roku part is a really, I don't know, man, I, I don't really understand how they don't have that stuff worked out before, um, you know, before you launch. And I mean, beyond that, I've just been reading tons of stuff. You know, the growing pains of this launch is just, you know, a lot of branding issues with the different, you know, names that they have for the different services and depending where you get it from and people with issues on their um, service provider end, like, you know, apps supposedly switching from, you know, HBO Now to Max and they never did and having to go through all these hoops to get the right app to get this content. So that's, that's kind of alarming to me too, because I mean, that's you want that stuff figured out, especially when you know you own a lot of these platforms and a lot of these, you know, some of these providers as a, you know, their their parent company does. And I don't know, it's just something about it just feels real sloppy um, it to is me, sloppy, like the launch yeah. itself. Not not the content, you know. It I've heard good things, but just the launch and the availability and the accessibility just seems like a quite a miss. Yeah. Definitely the back catalog is the thing. And I, I kind of just took a little spin around the the interface on my computer today, mm. and I thought it was pretty smooth. And it had it was like a, a fancier looking version of the HBO Now app, which was already okay. Yeah. So this is fine. But yeah, I think it's just lacking that big debut kind of feeling. And then when the Roku issue happened, I'm used to, LG is the kind of television I have, I'm used to it taking a while before they have the app for the LG smart TVs, you mm -hmm. know? So I'm kind of accustomed to, well, how am I going to watch this? I'll watch it on my computer. I, you know, luckily my computer's in the room with the television. I can run an HDMI cable across the room if I want to watch Apple Plus or, uh, or I guess now HBO Max on the television. So that's not a big deal, but it's not ideal. And I know Steve, being such a cable management freak, um, you would hate that, right? Like an HDMI cable? <laughs> what? Running across the room? Would you break out into hives if you saw that? Yeah. I am right now. Everybody who's listening should know that Steve's uh, setup is pristine. All, every cable is hidden. Um, <laughs> Steve hates cables. He hates the way they look. He thinks they look stupid. He doesn't want to see them. Yeah. Um, but uh, but no. So I yeah. I felt like HBO Max had a lot of hype building up to it, and when it came out, it did kind of feel like oh there it is. And I guess it, what's really going to happen is going forward, all these huge catalogs that are hitting it still. Um, it's like South Park is coming, things like that, that when you start to see how much content they really have, it's going to start to feel like they've kind of beat Netflix at its own game. Netflix used to be the place that was supposed to have everything, you know, yeah. um, and Amazon has that feeling of like, well, they're trying to have everything, but HBO Max can actually have a lot of those things. But yeah, right now it, it did feel kind of like it wasn't this glorious debut, but Steve, the news of the Snyder Cut, I haven't heard your feelings really much about that. <laughs> uh... I mean, I'm excited for it. I mean, I, I I understand the implications of it, and I and I can see that it's it's possibly a gateway to horrible decisions. But um, I mean, the the way I see it, I mean, we talk about all these streaming platforms all the time on this podcast, and I mean, if you could look at the Warner Brothers library of movies that they've had, you know, in the last five years. You know, the most staying long, like the the long gestating viral, like 
what what they've done with this idea of this cut that Zack Snyder has or had or will make it's 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 like it's just it's gold for them. I mean like it's a no-brainer if if they have the need for content and I don't know the real case of what it is. I've heard so many conflicting stories about you know, and not actually being something yet. Like it's just like clips from things that he's put together. You know, some people have claimed to have seen it already. I follow a critic who's writing a book about the whole release the Snyder Cut movement. Um, what? And yeah, no, it's really interesting. Um, he actually runs. Uh, what's the what's the site he runs? Yeah, uh, Cinema Blend. Mm. Uh, Sean O'Connell. Sean O'Connell. I follow him. He does a podcast with some other film journalist that I follow called Real Blend, but they were talking about, like, he's super into it. There are other film podcasts, Steve? Hold on a second, hold on. Yeah, I know, right? Okay, weird. Weird, weird, weird. But yeah, he, he's been very vocal about it, and he's, like, super a part of that movement, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm just open to, to seeing it. I, I, I'm just, it's more pure curiosity to me than any kind of, like, justice for Snyder or anything like that. Like, I, I, I don't have any thing to say about justice league but i'm just curious to see what this thing is or what it looks like the fact that it's not something that exists and is sitting there in a vault that they're now releasing but it's something that they're kind of putting together now that they know the interest is there i think that is important and i think that's the thing about the fan entitlement that bugs me is just the notion of kind of willing something into being by being an asshole that's it um, yeah bugs me the fact that 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 this is coming out and and we're going to get a chance to see what it's all about interests me so it's like these are two different (laughs) opinions that i have they're going to actually make this new thing with the advantage of all the perspective of everything that people loved and hated and everything people want so i think they have a lot of opportunity for kind of revisionism yeah that seems like it i think you'll hear only that he was kicked off of the of the film you know or, or left the film because of you know the family tragedy that he experienced but i mean there's also prior to that officially happening there was a lot of reports that the movie was like falling apart you know like he was going to be fired from the movie so and maybe those things happening maybe they had other things happening maybe that that tragedy had already i don't know but and that was impacting it i don't know but you know i've read so many things and listened to so many different takes on what happened during the production of that movie but the one thing that just interests me the most is just the fact that so many people involved with the movie and i mean these are like stars that are still stars of the dceu basically backing him and like saying like they need to put this they should or i'm putting my hand in and saying like i think you should put this movie out like even just to watch it and see what what it would have been but i mean like you know jason momoa is like a billion dollar franchise with aquaman you know wonder woman it's like you know arguably their biggest title and it's like all these people are backing him and it's that's what just makes me so curious is it is and, and and their support is maybe more along the you know, justice for Zach thing, but I feel like if 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 it if it came out and it was like a complete fucking train wreck again, like that would just be the dumbest thing to do unless you thought that there might be something cool to be seen. I don't know. Maybe that's just me being ideal about it. All of that's kind of interesting. I think that the sort of sub story that came out of it that David Ayer has said that the Ayer cut of uh, Suicide Squad exists. Like, I find that equally annoying on a certain level, the fact that that's now a headline. But as friend of the show Bob Rose pointed out, that's also a movie that you can be curious about because that's a case where it was literally re-edited by the company that made the trailer after the trailer came totally. out and people liked the trailer. Yeah. So, like, that's another case where I, I, my instinct is to scoff 
at like <laughs> releasing these un- unofficial cuts in theaters or making a big deal out of the fact that movies have different cuts because they've always had different right. cuts, you know? Right. And we've always had these movies you have to chase down. Yeah. But like the fact that, yeah, this is yet another one that I go, well, I can hear the case for why this would need to exist or why you might be interested, just like with the Snyder Cut, why it might be interesting to see what it is. I guess I would know, uh, I, you know, finally know what that movie was going to be before it got, it got kind of apparently really changed in the edit. Um, but now I'm like, well, should we start the uh, hashtag release the Lord and Miller cut of Solo so that we can see the, the Star Wars movie <laughs> that was too funny for Star Wars? Yeah. Yeah. Even though you love Solo, maybe you should start that. It should. <laughs> Harass them until they make something happen. Another thing to think about, and I mean, this is like, I'm trying to get myself into this headspace just talking about any kind of content that these platforms or, you know, streaming services, studios, whatever, are trying to generate. It's like, Never have you been able to access movie or TV in so many ways ever in history. Like literally every day that we have, like there's something new, you know, a new a new service, a new device, a new show, whatever. So it's like everybody, it, it's just an arms race to like have as much as you can have. So it's like the logic of something like the Snyder Cut or, I mean, I, I too am kind of curious about the Air Cut because that was even more kind of like a clean cut conversation of like that movie was done like that that was a that was a done film and it yeah. got completely moved around and re-edited so i mean that's an even inter- more interesting to me conversation cuz that genuinely was him finishing something the way he wanted to make it and you know and he's waited no like he he hasn't missed a beat to come out and be like yeah like i pretty much could make this happen quick you know if it was <laughs> if there was an interest in seeing this movie and um you know, that kind of thing is just like a no-brainer to me still in some ways because all they're trying to do is find a reason to, 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 to give me, to give you, to give Ronald, anybody, a reason to watch something on their service. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's like if there's an audience out there for that, even if you wouldn't or I wouldn't watch it, there's an audience for this stuff. And, I mean, that's how they're going to get – I mean, it's not about just having a good launch and getting a lot of subscribers – it's about quarter over quarter increasing that amount of subscribers by a certain percentage. And that's what's going to make or break a service like that. So it's like diversify, find all the great stuff that's out there, whether it's stuff you already have and you can just polish off and be like, look, HBO Max is going to be this cool little exclusive thing where you can watch these different takes on movies that you already seen, like maybe are what they were intended to be. It's just like... It's pretty amazing. From a business perspective, I'm just like... If I'm running this, I'm like, give me that cut because I want somebody to pay my service to, to watch this movie. Well, it's also kind of the scrolling power of like you scroll through. If, am I going to rewatch Suicide Squad? Probably not. Am I going to rewatch Suicide Squad if I if I know it's the drastically different edit? Do you know what I mean? And I'm just paging through one of these services one day. Totally, I could totally yeah. see myself putting that on, even if it's not something I'm I'm like hotly anticipating. So yeah, good point. I wanted to say two things about HBO Max before we go to the n- next subject. Uh, there, they kind of buried the. Lead lead on your access to HBO Max. If you have HBO on Xfinity or Verizon, you are able to get HBO Max for free if you're paying for HBO (laughs) already. So know that. Please know that. They didn't tell anybody. We just found that out by mistake um, when it it launched. I was about to pay the $15. um, And then I just looked under um, providers Xfinity and Verizon are there, and most of my friends that I've told about it have been able to sign in with both of those services with no problem. The next thing that I wanted to cover is we didn't go over any of the 
the content that's actually on it, any of the studios or collections of stuff. And I just wanted to list the things that are on it. Is that okay? Is that cool with you guys? Yes. Because nobody really knows. They didn't talk about this either. So Looney Tunes, yep. Crunchyroll, Adult yep. Swim, Cartoon Network, Turner Classic Movies, which is insane because that's not really anywhere else. Uh, the Sesame Street uh, Workshop, DC, and then Studio Ghibli, depending on how you who you talk to. Yeah, and then the HBO Ghibli, stuff. So, Ghibli, Ghibli. But basically, uh, all of the Miyazaki films <laughs> so the, and and his studios films. Yes. So yes, the, like a catalog that is is one of the most like revered catalogs because it has not been available digitally. Um, I don't think, uh, at least not in this kind of curated way. No. Again, that becomes like a crown jewel for a service like this. His movies. Well, let's talk about some of the new movies that we've been watching on different streaming services. And I think this would be uh, technically three different ways to stream a movie, right? We've got a Netflix movie, we've got an Amazon Prime movie, and then we've got just a movie movie. Um, I guess we'll start with the movie movie. What is the world to make of Scoob? Exclamation point. Um, for first and foremost, Scoob was... Uh, I, I'm a big fan of Scooby Doo. I've been a, uh, I've watched pretty much every iteration of it, including um, when Scooby was younger, when he was like a little kid and everybody was younger. Um, the pup named Scooby Doo. What was your favorite? I, I guess if you're a Scooby Doo fan, I was gonna say, you know, let's all let's let's talk about what Scooby Doo means to us. Uh, what what was your favorite iteration that you've seen over the years, Ronald? Pro- probably the first. Um, because I remember the Harlem Globetrotters and uh, Scooby-Doo, Where Are You is my favorite. Scooby-Doo, Where Are You was the original series that was like the the traditional format. And then I think it was called the new Scooby-Doo movies or something like that. That was the one where they had the two-part episodes or hour-long episodes where they would have celebrity guest stars. <laughs> yes, yes. Like the Harlem Globetrotters or, or one of the Three Stooges who was still alive, you know, as a guest on a cartoon. <laughs> um, right, right. I don't know. The charm of yes. Scooby-Doo for me has always been caught up in those original, like those two have that original character design, original Hanna-Barbera animation, sound effects, everything. I think the appeal of Scooby-Doo has always been the kind of, it's kind of cheesy. Like Hanna-Barbera yeah. was like a cheap studio. They made cut rate animation for television. And and I think what you had with Scooby-Doo, as mm-hmm. with many of the Hanna-Barbera shows, the character designers, the people doing like the key drawings of the characters were, were probably brilliant cartoonists and animators. And then the animation was was produced uh, for a nickel you know so they they did so much cheap stuff but the the designs the fundamental ideas behind these characters there's something so appealing about them but i think the real charm of scooby-doo to me it's that funky it's like accidental funky charm you know the music when they're running in and out of doors or across a hallway or whatever like all that stuff that is like was meant to be cool and for the kids at the time and now it feels like really kind of quaint and silly and sweet um, so to me, that's what Scooby-Doo is. So I, I, I don't know if, if how you guys feel about it, but like, to me, like I think of that version, the version that is simultaneously kind of cheesy and cringe inducing and like, you know, kind of funky and, and hip in this strange way. What's your sweet spot for Scooby-Doo, Steve? I mean, I definitely love all the old classics, but I mean, and you know, I can recall watching them growing up, like, you know, in my grandparents' house, like my grandfather loved the original series. Um, of you know the scooby-doo where are you but i gotta say like you know when i was a kid like i feel like the the pup name scooby-doo was like my jam like yeah you know that was right when i was about like seven or eight years old and 
I just loved, you know, the the idea that I was in elementary school and like all the kids in the show were in elementary school and their puppy was like helping them solve mysteries. I just remember <laughs> feeling like that was such a fun and cool thing. Uh, and that was it's always what it made it made it so fun. And I, I in that series specifically, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I thought it was great because and I remember reading this a little while ago when we talked about the movie. But like I, the guy that produced and developed that series eventually left Hanna Barbera, and went to Warner Brothers Animation and was a part of developing like Tiny Toons Adventures and Animaniacs and Pinky in the Brain. So a lot of the, the the feel and the fun of that show, I later you know at the same time even saw on shows like that, which you know all of them I just mentioned are some of my favorite animated shows when I was a kid. But um, yeah, I don't know. It ran for like I guess I don't know if it was like three or four years or three or four seasons and. I don't know. When I think of it, I always think about that series, um, you know, and I, and I have all those episodes too, like to show my daughter. So that's kind of I'm excited to do that too. And she she watched Scoob with me and with Aaron when we watched it when it came out a few weeks ago, and like she's been obsessed with it ever since. And the irony is like she loves the Scooby Doo stuff, and you can talk about this when we talk about the movie, but. Like, the inclusion of Captain Caveman and the inclusion of, like, Dick Dastardly and Muttley. Like, she loved that stuff. Like, she loved mm. those characters. And she's been, like, she talks about them probably as much as Scoob, which is funny to me. But, so we've been kind of, like, going back and watching some of those older ones, too. I want to talk about uh, the actual proper audience for this movie, which might be your household. <laughs> but I don't know. It's an interesting thing to have endured so much because watching this movie, which I'll, I'll have to say, for me, um, it kind of, it, like, strained my ability to really invest in these characters emotionally and like what is the core of this group what is what am i supposed to really care about not what's entertaining about it or what do i find funny but like what what is the drama like when if, if you're going to kind of pixar eyes or kind of spielberg eyes the emotions behind this which this new movie scoob does like what is the core of the concept um, and I started to think like, okay, this is for kids. This new one, at least, is definitely for kids. You already kind of spoiled that that Sydney liked it, but you know, let's talk a little bit about that with this movie. Like, how how did you feel about it, Steve? Seeing your little girl watch it versus your your feelings about it. I mean, I can't say I was a big fan of the movie. I mean, I, it didn't really have a lot for me. I didn't really. Uh, I kind of was almost immediately kind of surprised and taken out of it. Um, when I realized that the movie is not a fun comedy horror mystery, but instead it's like a superhero film. And I, I didn't really like that. Um, she knows no difference, you know, talking about Sydney, but like, you know, I kind of like the opening sequence, you know, when they're kids and like going through the credit crawl where they're doing all these monsters, it's like, that's a lot of the stuff that I wanted to see, you know, and that's a lot of the fun of the series that I remember, even talking about, you know, the original or, or a pup or any of the iterations, they always had that beyond the, beyond the tongue in cheek stuff. Like it always was like kind of that fun kind of comedy horror mystery, you know, for, for an animated show. And I thought it was kind of a bummer to me that, you know, the only real bit of that you got was in the first five, 10 minutes of the movie. And the rest of it is, is really just a, you know, superhero and villain, comic book movie you know which i guess that's following the mold of what's popular now but um that was probably my biggest kind of right off the jump i was kind of like bummed out that it wasn't going to follow that normal kind of story or narrative that i expected from a scooby-doo show or even the 
other, you know, James Gunn Scooby-Doo movie. Like, you know, they, they kind of stuck with that idea more. One of the reasons that happens, Steve, is because Blue Falcon and Dino Mutt are such big characters in this movie that they actually do take time away from the other characters. And I just found myself thinking, this really, and I, I think this has been announced, so I'm not, annou- I'm not saying anything that intelligent, but this really feels like, boy, this is a movie that wants to be the, the beginning of a franchise. Yeah. The way that it starts off these kind of side characters, uh, Captain Caveman, you, you mentioned, um, you know, Tracy Morgan in that role feels like it could be a movie. Uh, I guess Mark Wahlberg and Ken Jong as uh, Blue Falcon and Dynamut could be a movie. There's just different things that feel like this. It's like it's so true that it's taken so far away from the the charms of the Scooby-Doo cheesy format that I was talking about that you alluded to. So it is a little bit weird that they kind of completely reinvented it and tried to make it this. Um, this different sort of story that's like sappier to me than Scooby-Doo should should be. The, the key to bringing nostalgia into uh, a new place is kind of keeping the heart of what it is. And regardless of if they change the format, it still should, at the, at the core of it, have the elements that made it good, which was like the, the horror element, the surprises, the jump scares, for them at least. Um, Kind of the experience of some teenagers going around exploring a crime that's been committed in the area and then whatever surrounds it. Even if it gets like supernatural, even if there's time travel, at the element, at the heart of it, it's still a bunch of kids who are grounded in reality, who aren't like snarky pieces of shit going through the world trying to solve a, solve a crime. Somehow, they, they kind of put this scope of like Instagram generation snarky dry humored stuff that that is is cool but every person that exists in 2020 2021 is not like that it's like it's like this sweeping uh, like assumption that everybody in the world that's on the internet is a snarky piece of trash that talks like this to everybody that goes about in the world like this and and sure man it's it's a it's a funny thing if maybe one of the one of the characters were like that, but the whole movie felt like that. I mean, it still had, though expects you to like sit down and watch a movie and then find it to be a, a credible plot development. <laughs> that Scooby Doo is a descendant of Alexander the Great's dog. <laughs> like you don't need to know that. Like I'm just saying, you don't need to know. That and and also like there's a point where Scooby Doo like the actor Frank Welker who's always done Scooby Doo I think is doing Scooby Doo in this and that's kind of cool but there's a part where you know he, there's there's some lines he has that just hearing it in the Scooby Doo voice they work really hard to stick to the sort of gag that Scooby Doo uh, you know basically has a speech impediment and everybody makes fun of him for mm-hmm. it but there's a part where he's entering into a portal and he says there is no other way I am the key. And I was just like, Scooby-Doo's not supposed to say shit like that. You know what I mean? Like, this is not the kind of story that he's <laughs> supposed to be in. I, I'm not saying investing these characters with sincerity is a problem for me. I'm saying putting them in the midst of this kind of big mythic thing. I don't think this movie, maybe, yeah. did enough for me to redeem that idea. But the reason I was so curious about what Sydney thought was that when I when I had this thought at the beginning of this movie, there's a scene early on where uh, Scooby-Doo's given his collar 
And they make a big deal out of the collar to the point where you go, oh boy, I wonder if that detail is going to come back in a later scene. Yes. And sure enough, it does. Uh, but I was thinking, and in a way that I felt very uncynical, I was like, oh, this isn't for me. This is for kids. Like this, this movie is for people who can have this Scooby-Doo idea kind of reintroduced to them through this movie. Uh, or maybe introduced to them for the first time. And it's not for people who think of Scooby-Doo as this kind of fun piece of silly trash that has this weird amount of charm. Do you know what I mean? That like, I loved it when I was a kid, but I have not, like, I don't revere it. I just kind of think it's fun. Like I, I, if anyone, if anyone was really bashing Scooby-Doo, I would, I would fight them. Um, I have warm feelings towards it, but I I just don't think that this is the way that it should be treated. When you said, Steve, it should be a, a horror mystery adventure it's like yeah that's what's missing from this movie is that is creeping around a haunted house yeah. you know yeah and totally. scooby stop scooby speaking in whole sentences that that's never happened in any of the versions of the show i am the chosen one shaggy you must let me go to the next realm yes he's never spoken in whole sentences it's like fragments that kind of um play on other things that people are saying He's never said like I don't understand. It, it, it that happens a lot in this movie, and I, I thought about why that made me so uncomfortable. We've never seen a version of Scooby that spoke in whole sentences, and it is weird. It doesn't fit. It doesn't make any sense, and you kind of almost can't understand everything that he's saying, which. Which also makes it weird. One of the other things that stood out to me was just, I, I wasn't really a big fan of the animation itself either. The secondary characters were just like dead-eyed. Yeah, I, I just feel like, you know, every time you got to spend with like Fred and Daphne and Velma, like it, like I don't even know why them specifically, like when, they're th- when the three of them are together, they're off doing their thing. That's really, I feel like when the animation was kind of bothering me the most, uh... I don't know why specifically, really bland, but like just bland their, looking characters. Yeah. yeah, it was so it was so plain and like it. And there's nothing going on. There's not a lot going on for those characters for a lot of the movie. So it's like I guess those are the moments that I'm really like looking at the animation and not just like all of the you know action around the screen. And it just uh, I don't know. It just didn't impress me at all. I mean, I think in general, I think the movie's fine. And like I think John, what you said is is the key is that. I think they're trying to, to straddle a line where, like, they put enough there with the characters, where they're trying to introduce characters, where there's enough of, like, a touch of maybe what you remember. But obviously for us, it seems not enough that, you know, you would stick with it and want to watch it. And I think really what it's ultimately doing is trying to create, you know, a new in a new series of films that they can put out for a generation of, you know, kids as young as mine or, you know, through elementary school or whatever. I, I know like other kids that, you know, have seen it that really enjoyed it. And I think that's really what they're trying to hit is, Oh, there's a cool character, Captain Caveman and, you know, Blue Falcon and, and, you know, Dick Dastardly and Muttley and Dynamite, like all these, it's a lot in this movie for being like an hour and a half. You get a lot of that universe of Hanna-Barbera and it's like, Okay, so yeah, that that's the plan, obviously. Um, that said, I feel like that towards the end of the movie, regardless of how big the scope gets, which does not feel like it fits in a Scooby-Doo movie at all, I, I do feel like the movie's kind of like nice in the end. Like I think that it kind of ends like the heart kind of comes through more towards the end, which I thought was yeah. pretty cool. There's one thing that I, I did want to find out what you guys thought of, the casting of Will Forte as Shaggy. 
So like that was a big story because Matthew Lillard has been associated with Shaggy since he played him in the live action versions. He's done him in a lot of cartoons. Uh, he even, uh, you know, uh, made a, an announcement or made a statement on Twitter that was like, oh, wow, this is how I find out, you know, when he heard the announcement that Will Forte was in as Shaggy, that he was out. What do you guys think of that? I know we recently had a conversation about Matthew Lillard. Ronald doesn't like Matthew Lillard uh, in much. No. Um, or I, my, my impression is you don't like him in much, Ronald. I don't like him in um, much. You're right. And Steve, I think I think you're okay with him. What do you guys think about his association with Shaggy? And do you think Will Forte does enough? Or because Shaggy becomes kind of the the main character of this movie in a lot of ways, so Will Forte is sort of the star. Um, you know, I love Will Forte. I also kind of felt a little bad for Matthew Lillard. How did you guys feel? Matthew Lillard does a, does a great Shaggy man. Like that's that's the thing. Like I don't I don't love him in everything, but he he is a great Shaggy and. One thing that did that was very weird on top of the animation being very bland was the voice work in this movie wasn't that good to me. And sometimes there were there were periods where I was just like, I kind of wish that Shaggy was more Shaggy. I kind of wish that Thelma was more Thelma. It just just it, everything was falling flat for me on a lot of levels. And this, I mean, I. I I don't have to love every aspect of it because I'm open to animation, man. It's not like I'm, I'm like, oh, this is bullshit and walk away. But it was so derivative of the original in such weird ways that I think the voice work could have been better if they just casted people that sounded like the people rather than, again, just hiring high-end celebrities for fucking bullshit, man. It just it, it gets real frustrating after a while. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I love Will Forte, but I did not like him as Shaggy. He was terrible. Just, like, literally from the start. And I couldn't help but think, uh, why is Matthew Lillard... And I, I genu- genuinely really like Matthew Lillard, for the record, in most of the things he's ever been in. Um, but, uh, I, I really wish, I really wish he would have, uh, been asked to do the voice of Shaggy. He actually does the Shaggy voice. I think that Will Forte kind of didn't, didn't try to do it that much. I mean, it's definitely like a hit for them. I mean, you know, the, the, the market space, like there's really not much coming out. I feel like they're going to probably release some pretty big numbers, especially because, you know, I, I believe like, versus trolls i i don't know exactly what the budget was for this but i can I, i'd be shocked <laughs> if it was anywhere near what right, trolls right. was um which you know i i think in the end it's like a pretty big win for for them um i don't even see a budget listed on the page oh yeah i don't even see a budget listed um yeah there isn't one i noticed that yeah it's weird um I mean, all in all, it's it's. A, I think it's a hit for them. I don't know how they quantify that. I think that you know this is a good opportunity. If they, I I had read a couple articles that there were plans or that that's. I think the goal is to have, um, you know, some sort of opportunity for Warner Animation Group to kind of be able to spin this out, and even if this, even if some of them are direct to a streaming platform, I mean, this this could be the level of something that doesn't necessarily need to go to theaters. And you know, I don't know if they'll measure that out after this is released, but um, I just think that you know, it'd be curious to see if they can if they can gauge that. Um, I want to. There was an article that I had read. I'm trying to find it. It was basically saying that. The, the the movie had like a, a higher 
uh, view count than Trolls mm. World Tour or, or higher, uh, like, you know, uh, stream count than Trolls World Tour. Um, and I know it was number one for the first couple weeks and maybe it dropped down in weeks three and four. But what was interesting about it, I want to say the price point for it when they released it, it was it was a higher price point too. So I want to say it was like twenty four ninety nine as opposed to nineteen ninety nine, and I think they're gonna kind of start doing that with some of these titles. Like there's the, the premium VOD pricing, um, which is obviously helping these these numbers that they'll end up probably reporting the week after we release this podcast. But um, I don't know. I mean, I would definitely I would definitely check out any of the spinoffs that they put out. You know, it's something fun to watch with my kid. Um, well, all right. Well, Ronald, there's one thing we want to talk about that you didn't really finish, and I want to get into why you didn't finish it. But before we do that, we should talk about the uh, rom-com that was going to come out in theaters, but then was, was sort of yanked and quickly purchased and put out by Netflix. It's uh, uh, Issa Rae and uh, Kamel Nanjiani's movie, The Lovebirds, which is sort of... Um, if you're wondering, did we end up with a date night or a game night? It's not quite as good as uh, game night, but it's it's closer to game night than it is to date night, which is a movie I didn't like. What did you guys <laughs> think? How do you think? Uh, how do you think the Lovebirds compared to date night and or game night? Um, and are you like me? Did you just think the chemistry of these two actors and how funny and likable they are was the main thing that made this, uh, you know, perfectly watchable? Yeah, yeah, it was it was definitely one of those movies. I, I mean, two comedic actors who who hold their own on screen and look we're we're going through this thing now in the past couple years where asian uh leads as uh men as um like attractive uh sexual beings is a very new concept in american cinema and it's happening in a cool way It, it you know they don't address it so much as they just present Kumail as a person who is dating an, an attractive person in the world, which is very new, um, whether people realize it or not. Um, and I love how it was executed. This is what we need to see more of, just movies that are, it doesn't matter if it's middle of the road. The fact that it's just a movie in the world that exists is, is good for me. And uh, I enjoyed it. it. I wasn't expecting fireworks. I, I thought it was good enough. I, th- I had a lot of fun. I laughed a bunch. So... It served its purpose to me. So I, I could I could definitely have seen this movie probably coming out in theaters and doing okay. I, I do think it's kind of yeah, that's a good date night versus game night. Like not that either of those movies really I don't I don't know. Actually date night actually probably did really well. Uh game night I wish had done better. Um so sure, it's probably in between those two, but it really just it exists just on on the two leads. I mean, Issa Rae and Kamal are just like I think I think they're really fun together. I think the one thing that comes out of this is they both seem like they are stars, right? Yeah, I think I definitely think they are stars. Absolutely. Just gotta find the right right movie. I don't know. I don't know that this was it. I I, I kind of agree with everything everybody said. I, I just I, I think I really like Michael Showalter too, who directed this film. Also did the Big Sick with Kamal. Um, but I don't know. Something something just seemed to be missing, or just kind of felt a little generic about the movie. That's why it was a great watch at home. Yeah, sure. And the best thing you can say is the two of them are 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 really good in it, and like you you would love to see them, you know, as a lead in other films with maybe more material or better material, and or together in another kind of rom com like this, that kind of is like you know the night in the life of kind of comedy, which are great fun to watch. But um, but yeah, overall, it's fun. It's it's. It's a fun watch and yeah.
All right. Well, there's one movie we watched that you didn't finish, Ronald, and I want to sure. know, you said it wasn't your speed at all. We're talking about the movie The Vast of Night. Before you say that, though, how did you come across this movie, Steve? You recommended that we watch it for the show, and uh, you know, how did it cross your radar? Um, actually, I, I'd heard about it last year at Slamdance, because it, it won the Audience Award, and it, you know, it's kind of going around a few different of the trades, you know, kind of, they were reporting on that, and I remember just reading a lot about uh, the filmmaker just like, you know, basically being his feature debut. His name is Andrew Patterson. But the the big story they were talking about was that it, it was like kind of this fun, like kind of throwback to like a, uh, like a, like a Twilight Zone type episode or something like the blob or invasion of the body snatchers. Um, but, but really that it had been rejected by so many other festivals before Slamdance played it. And it won an audience award, so that was crazy. And then ultimately ends up playing, you know, at Toronto and a few other film festivals before Amazon acquired it. And yeah, I just had a few different, again, I follow a lot of different film bloggers on Twitter and listen to some podcasts. And half of them had been talking about this movie. And I've had it on my watch list for easily, you know, six or seven months just waiting for information about it coming out. And I was... Super excited that, you know, it was coming out. I saw it came out. It was coming out in drive-ins uh, oh, the middle of May, but I, I didn't, I, I don't think there were any around here because I was considering going there to watch it possibly, but it came out on Amazon Prime, uh, yeah, last Friday, but um, yeah, it was totally word of mouth, you know, through festivals and a lot of people just kind of, you know, broadcasting this, this little indie movie um, that was under, you know, less than a million dollars to make. And I don't know. I was really excited to see it. So then you recommended that we watch it for the show. And uh, I watched it. And Ronald tried to watch it, but but told us in a text that he, he gave up on the movie at a certain point. And Ronald, you even said that you had a realization about movies in general. And I... I I honestly have a hunch what it might be because I was actually already thinking about you while watching this movie, which is set during the 1950s, which is a, a, a time period that gets romanticized on film a lot. So I was actually sitting there thinking uh, about how much you might be enjoying this movie anyway. Uh, I would love to hear what it was that made you give up on The Vast of Night. I've been having a hard time articulating this for like 10 years and I think I figured out what it is about this movie and movies in general sometimes when I'm coming in to watch it, uh, just being me in the world. So um, I, I hope this isn't too heavy, but I'll drop it on you guys and maybe it'll help you understand the, why I felt the way I did about this movie. All right. So in general, the dominant culture in, in film is white culture. Every movie that I see pretty much has that scope, right? For 36 years, I've been seeing these narratives where I'm watching a movie with people that don't look like me, which is fine. You know, you, I'm kind of forced to deal with it. It's it's the, just the way that it is. And I'm forced to, like, basically suspend disbelief for 30 to 90 minutes of my life. Like, I'm seeing people in situations that I could never be in because, um, like, how would a movie, how would I be in the 50s? Could I, could I be in this situation? How would I be treated? If what would happen if the police got called? How would I re, how would I react to this? And I'm always forced to suspend my disbelief, right? And there's situations where uh, it, it's harder than than other situations, other movies 
to suspend that disbelief because that's essentially what I have to do. And and I, I know that you guys can come into it and be like, this is just a movie about the past. This is just a movie about a person in a situation. But my scope as a black man in the world affects the way that I watch movies. And it's something that sometimes I sneak into some of my reviews, but it's something that affects every time I'm watching a movie. And this is one of those movies that I could not suspend my disbelief in being in this situation. Because sometimes it's just a matter of like, do I like these people? I could imagine being friends with these people, but I, I couldn't do it for this movie. It was so far back in a time that I couldn't imagine myself being in it. I couldn't imagine how this could play out. There were almost no black people for the first half an hour of the movie. I, I know that that's not a thing that has to be done for every movie, but it affected me more than most. And some of that had to do with the scope of everything happening now. But it's something I've always felt, something I've kind of voiced throughout the podcast. So overall, I couldn't even finish the movie because of that. It's something you can't not be thinking about. Like, I think if you're watching movies and you're not thinking about race and representation, um, and th then you're not thinking about movies. It's easier to watch. I know this sounds crazy. But it's easier to watch a Marvel or DC movie. That's it's easier for me to believe that than some of the things that happen in movies sometimes. Like that's how that's how absurd it is for to to put this stuff on somebody and be like, "Hey, this is a movie that you could watch. Imagine yourself in this world or you being a friend of this person in this time." It's something I've always had to deal with when we watch movies, and it's something I never fucking wanted to bring to your table. Like, I mean, you guys are my friends, and um, it's this is a very big part of my movie watching experience that I share a lot with my fiance, and you know, she's an ally because she's also black, but also like she understands. I'm in art spaces a lot, so I'm always bringing whatever I have into a world that's often not like mine. And that's okay. But a lot of the times the culture, the dominant culture is always put on me and I'm supposed to be okay with it forever. And sometimes when we're going through this stuff, it's very hard to take this information in this revisionist version of history that exists sometimes in movies, this, this, ignoring I'm not saying that everybody that existed in the 50s were terrible to black people but a lot of people were there were a lot of things in place that were affecting this time and so this piece of art is affected by that in my head and and I'm impaired in that way so that's a thing it's a real thing I'm sorry, I didn't mean to make it so heavy. I, I am trying to better understand perspective like the one that you have, and it's good to hear you say that. I mean, I guess I'm curious, like, is, and it's. I hope it's okay for me to ask you questions to better understand it. Look, Steve, I, I want you to. I want you is, to. Is, is, it, is it that this movie, is it that, like, a movie that's about this time would, is it is it that a movie about this time or this story takes place in that time is being made once again, or is that that a movie like this being made that takes place in this time is not showing the black experience at that time? It's a little of both, and some of it, some of it is like, some of it is like, if you, it's like if 
it would be cool if they showed that people couldn't stay in the same places. Like right, I'd be right, like, oh, right. okay, that makes yeah. sense to me. But sometimes you'll watch a movie and it's like people are just sprinkled throughout the crowd. Sometimes it's like, uh, come, are you sit? Where are the? Where are they at? Where this? Where is this utopia that they're at? Where these black extras are sprinkled in the way that they're sprinkled in? Or and, and look again, I'm not trying to say that everybody that existed during this time was the most hateful person in the world. Right. But this is something that I, I face sometimes when I'm watching these movies that take place during this time. Did you get to the the one black character that's in the movie? So I got to the guy that called yeah. and gave the account. Was he black? Yeah. I figured that he was a black dude. We've all talked on this show about how we don't like want to see another movie about the, you know, the Holocaust or slavery or whatever. We don't need to see suffering thrown in our faces so much, but a movie like this that kind of sidesteps it, I often wonder, is this, like, is it, you know, back to Steve's question about, is it that these stories are being told at all, or that they're not really representing the full experience of what people were going through? It does seem like to put that stuff in a movie like this and, and nod to it, as they do, with that one little exchange, mm -hmm. but then never really deal with it. It's a little bit like they're ticking the box of dealing with race, um, and sidestepping it. And then the movie exists in, as you've said, a totally white sphere. But you have to believe that these are situations and places where black people would be very uncomfortable or very unwelcome. And you're supposed to just sort of not think about it. And that is weird. It's super weird. Maybe it is the era that we just need, um, you know, that the only way to, to, to avoid this is to not not look back so much. Right. There's a whole thing in our country about make it make it great again. You know, <laughs> when was it great and who was it great for right. is, right. The, is the next right. question. And um, I don't think people really, I don't think a lot of people have looked beyond that idea that the good old days exist. And you think about like, well, for who? Yeah. And, 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 and it's over the years, I've just chosen to opt out of movies that we've, that have been reviewed that you, know, you may have noticed sometimes I'm just like, I haven't seen that movie. It's some some of that has to do with that, man. Like it's that's heavy. It's a heavy thing to reveal in this space, but really that's what it boils down to. Sometimes you you're forced to suspend disbelief on a level that is almost like uh, deafening. It's it, it feels like uh, you're being um, it's revisionist to be completely honest to you with me with you. It is something that I I've I I talk about in my art. It's almost like when I do stand-up, I talk about race a lot, but that's because people talk to me about race a lot. People always wonder why black comics, black uh, artists talk about race so much. It's brought up so much to us by mistake, uh, on purpose, that it's something that has to be tackled on a pretty regular basis. And, it's, and, it, and the conversation changes from place to place, but it's always going to be a conversation because it always comes up. It always comes up. So I'm, I'm, I feel safe talking to you guys about it, and I'm glad that I talked to you. But I'm sorry it took so long. But I have mentioned it throughout throughout us talking about movies how some of that stuff has affected me. So right, it's something that's always in my head. It's something that I've you know I I actually wind up talking about a lot in the comedy space, but. That movie was unwatchable to me last night. Like uh, Aaron and I tried to watch it twice, and it was because of everything that we talked about. That that movie was very hard to press play and go through, and it was 
<laughs> it was like again i was better off watching a marvel or dc movie i i would have believed that more happening tomorrow that there would have been a a beam from the sky and a and an alien prince trying to take over the world than me watching this movie and seeing the the sparsity of some of the representation and then the way that the representation was done in a movie like this i'm better off believing a marvel movie so that that's that's what it is it's it's something that i combat all the time and I'm, I feel really shitty because I know that this movie was like critically acclaimed and I'm coming into it being like I couldn't even get through 30 minutes of it. it that makes me feel nuts. But No, I mean, honestly, if the movie is going to come out in 2020, I think it is open to this critique. I mean, it should have been at any time, but especially now, you know, like it's just it's not going to. It's not going to go unnoticed. But, I mean, beyond the sheer whiteness of this movie, um, the reason it's critically acclaimed, I think, is just because of its kind of visual audacity, the way that it, it tells its story and it kind of reinvents its visual style as it goes along. But uh, as far as it being kind of a... Uh, it felt like a film festival film to me in a lot of ways. Like, if I saw this at a film festival, I might appreciate the fact that it goes to some interesting places that are pretty genrefied. But I also... Felt like I'm, you know, it, I was watching it thinking of the people I wasn't going to recommend it to because it is a very, <laughs> like the pacing of it, everything about it. Do you know what I mean? Like the, it, it is like a movie that you, you, a certain person might really like the the storytelling in this movie, and another person is just going to go, when is this going to get going, and where is this going? I, honestly, like I just thought the filmmaking was impressive. I mean, I, I really like, you know, uh, like uh, what's the right word, like. Um like efficient filmmaking like yeah it's a lot of talking it's a lot of spending time with only a few characters um a lot of screen you know screen going dark and just hearing somebody's voice to kind of give you perspective on something but yeah i don't know like i, I just really thought I'm, I'm a sucker for alien movies or invasion movies anything like that so just the idea of you know investigating this suspicious sound and, uh, you know, talking to some characters that have stories to tell about it. Um, and just throughout the movie, I just felt like for being fairly a fairly short film and there's a few shots in the movie that I just thought were like really kind of impressive. I don't know if they're real, like one take shots or whatever, or the oneers that they call them. But, um, you know, there's some, there's some finesse to uh, a couple shots like... They kind of do a good job. Like we always talk about like movies that like kind of create geography or like shots that create geography. And there's a shot in the movie that kind of goes out of where the the female lead is and, and you know, kind of through the town, through the gym, through the car parking lot. You know, it kind of and it's not really a large town, but it, it kind of creates this physical space for you that kind of tells you how small it is and how isolated it is. And um I don't know. It's just like, I think what they were able to accomplish as a first time film. And like I said, on like a pretty small budget, um, it does have a vibe of like a festival film. And I, I could totally have seen this movie like at the Maryland film festival one of these years. But, um, I just think, you know, there's a, there's something to the filmmaking of it that I really kind of was impressed with for being able to do kind of what they did with the budget, uh, you know, with really just having, really just two leads and um, only a couple like special effects shots that I thought were really, 
you know, I thought they were really kind of impressive to be honest with you. Um, I don't think that he has, the filmmaker has anything kind of announced or set up or anything like that, but, uh, of what's coming up, but. Oh no. Did you not hear it? Like w- when they were finishing the VFX shots for this, he shot like a, th- a thriller. Somewhere, oh really? He said. Wow. I didn't, I didn't know that. No, yeah. I, so he I supposedly just, got another one. I had just out. read that he had done like a bunch of, uh like commercial stuff in between a lot of things, but I know he, he like doesn't even put his, like, I don't even think he officially has his name on the film or something like that. It's weird. Like it's on IMDb, but I read an article, I think on IndieWire where it was talking about like when he, when he wrote the movie and submitted it, uh, for rep for like a representation or for an agent or whatever, like it was like a pseudonym and that's the name that's on it or something. It's weird. Yeah. And he edited the movie under a pseudonym too. I noticed in the credits somewhere he edited it under a, a false name. Maybe his uh, movie that he's already shot that the thriller, maybe that was set post Jim Crow era. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. You know, like a movie in 2020 being made about 1950, like, you know, in 1960, 1970, sure, maybe they're making movies that take place in the 50s and 60s, but like, why why in 2020? You know, yeah, yeah that, that, that idea makes a lot of sense to me now that you've shared that. I mean, and that idea has crossed my mind from just my perspective of like, why, why, why another like throwback nostalgic looking thing? But that's a new, in, that's definitely a good insight that, you know that you shared and it's like weird like i mentioned on a thread that we had like what what really hooked me was like this idea and i mentioned on a podcast a couple episodes back like just these movies like i mentioned like vivarium and like i'd watch that movie um that sam worthington netflix movie i can't remember what it was called now like that that movies that like literally you could like place it in it it it, it was like a long form episode of the twilight zone and like that, yeah. this movie, this movie definitely that was enticing to me because like I just love the sci-fi. Like this is like another dimension type thing, um, and that was like a big hook. So I mean, that's definitely it. Definitely, fulfill, it definitely I see it as such. Like that, that's what it is to me. Is like this um, weird alien invasion type thing. But I don't know. Maybe the, like why that time? I guess is a good question. Yeah, I don't feel bad about my feelings so much as I feel like you know you you guys. It, it seemed like Steve, you liked the movie, and I I hated to come in like well, actually, well, actually, <laughs> that's what bothered me about it. You know, not so much my feelings about it, but I I care about you guys' opinions. Like it, it that's that's something sure. that, that's always likewise, likewise, what works for us. So yeah. You know, no, I, it's fine, Ronald. You said only racists could like this movie, and then Steve and I talked about how we kind of <laughs> like this movie. <laughs> and, and, so and it was fine. Steve said Heil, and then, you know, that's, that's just what happened. And I just mentioned, once again, I'm from Alabama, and that's enough. <laughs> um, it is the conversation in my mind, so I don't think we should ever shy away from it. Okay. Well, thank you, man. I second that. What other stuff did we see? I don't know, man. I watched this shit ton of stuff man did you well besides oh, the H- besides the hbo max stuff what else um so i watched uh the companion piece for um the last dance game six the movie which was presented by espn they basically did the very last game that jordan played before he retired uh versus the utah jazz um they 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 took all the HD footage, put it together. They took away the scoreboard and it, and just showed it like a movie scene. So like you're you're sitting in the like basically in the stands watching this game. 
and the score occasionally shows up. You get the you know the timeouts. You get to hear what's in the timeouts if they have the footage. It is very weird to watch and experience. Like if if you're interested at all in the Last Dance to see how this came together, because there wasn't any HD footage back in the day, and the fact that they captured this stuff back then out of this world. So I'd suggest maybe watching that if you guys were into the Last Dance. Um, I saw Bad Trip. Uh, which was the uh, movie that we kind of talked about before. It's like a series of just pranks put to, put together in this wrapper of a film starring uh, Lil Rel and... God, why can't I remember this guy's name? Eric Andre. Eric Andre. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> I saw the movie High Note with Dakota Johnson and Tracy Ellis Ross. I thought that was a fun movie it wasn't the best it wasn't the worst kind of felt like an elevated lifetime movie and i'm not trying to shit on lifetime movies but it (laughs) felt like an elevated lifetime movie and then i saw scream queen uh my nightmare on elm street about the star of nightmare on elm street 2 uh mark Patton, and this different perspective of the movie kind of being touted as this uh kind of movie in the lgbtq plus community as a representation of the first black uh, first black i'm so sorry the first uh (laughs) gay lead (laughs) right the first black the first uh uh, gay uh lead scream (laughs) queen the first gay scream queen documentary was really good man it's it's worth checking out and steve you said something about contributing some money to the creation of the movie, uh, the, the funding of the movie. Yeah, I think I did like the five or ten dollar limit, like on a Kickstarter, like which I think I got like a thanks on Facebook or something. But I haven't seen it yet. But yeah, you asked about it, and I definitely want to check it out. I know it's been like going around the festivals for a while and has gotten really good reviews. So I, yeah. I'm definitely uh, interested in seeing it. And and I yeah, I mean like that that whole conversation around Nightmare on Elm Street two has you know obviously has been going on for years and it was a big part of like that I forget what that like eight part documentary series that they put out on the box set for Nightmare on Elm Street like there was a big chunk of it in there that was talking about this topic and and even specifically about Mark Patton's experience with the movie and kind of how like it's sort of like ran him out of Hollywood cuz he he he, yeah. he he talks about that on that doc even and I think that's kind of what from what I watched on Kickstarter when they were doing the the crowdfunding for it you know, that's kind of what I think the fact that there was an audience to listen to that story and wanting to hear that story um, through that box set. I think that's kind of what kind of catapulted him to go and make this documentary. So, yeah, I, I need to check it out still. I'm definitely looking forward to seeing it. There there are some parts like in a third act where you sometimes you wonder what the documentary is actually about. Mm. Um, it does get a little messy, but it really does tackle all the questions that you have because there are some ones that kind of happen almost midway through because he's presented in one way uh mark Patton, and mm-hmm. then it gets to the bottom of the feelings that he expressed in that uh box set right where he's just like this is an issue for me i need to address this issue exactly i feel like there's a reason why all this happened he gets really aggressive towards the end really aggressive wow. and like i said you kind of wonder at some point like like what is this what is this movie about and doesn't um doesn't he like interview the the screenwriter or the director and doesn't it like i feel like i've seen clips or read about like him actually confronting him he does that's the last that's yeah. the last okay. scene of the movie okay. it's pretty much the last 
part of it um, is when he confronts him. Because the question throughout the documentary is, how did the writer of this film feel about it? And during the course of the, the decades that have passed, the director is pretty much, I mean, I'm sorry, the writer has pretty much denied that it had any gay context whatsoever. Right. And this guy was bringing in his gayness into the role and that's that was it. That was nothing to do with it. He may have possibly even ruined the movie because right, right, of right. his natural behavior in this film. So that's a big part of this man's bitterness about his career and everything that followed. And it's Interesting. a big question towards the end. And you get it. You get it answered in the best way possible. You know, the, the best that they can muster within the conversation that they have. Right, right. But it's worth checking out, man. Cool. Yeah, I want to watch that. Ooh, we watched Space Force on Netflix, which um, what did you think about it? Was I was very disappointed by. Um, <laughs> Everybody's saying that, man. Did you watch it? Uh, so okay, I was. I watched like two episodes. I don't. I didn't dislike it, but I could I could tell that I was in for some disappointment. I could it's tell. weird because it's like you look at everybody that's in it, and I mean it's amazing who is in it, even in small roles throughout the season. It's just insane, like how many funny people and good actors, actresses are in this in this show. And obviously, it's because of who's involved with it, and it's Netflix, and you know they pay for whatever they want. But a lot of people just seem to say it's not that funny. Nobody seems to be saying it sucks. Maybe it's a thing where like the first season, it's not great. Cause it doesn't know where it's, it's like it's footing is, you know, where, where it's at right now. Like, uh, it does bounce around, like getting a little more serious at times. And like, I don't, I just feel like the character that Steve Crow is playing is, man, I don't know, maybe miscast. I don't know. There's a couple, there's a couple roles and performances that just seem maybe miscast. Um, there's, there's like, you know, Malkovich is actually great in it. Jimmy O. Yang's great in it. Um, even Lisa Kudrow, who's barely in it is great when she's in it. But, um, I don't know. It's just a, it's just a weird show. Like maybe, maybe it is like, I, you know, I can, you can think back in like some of the great sitcoms that, you know, in it's run, like it didn't find maybe till season two or three to be great. But I mean, that's not an excuse. Like, this is a lot of talent. This is a lot of you know, experience and just like a really good opportunity to make a really funny show, a topical, very ridiculously realistic show from what we're living in right now. Um, I will say this, there, there, there are definitely a handful of scenes that are, I definitely laughed out loud, like, and, and, but, but unfortunately most of them are not involving Steve Crow. Um, there's one scene I want to say in episode four or five between Jimmy O. Yang and Ben Schwartz that is one of the funniest of the whole season. Um, that I, that that is genuinely hilarious. And if you guys see it, you'll know it when you see it. Is Ben Schwartz good in general? I think he is. You know, it's it's just a weird it's a weird show, man. It's it's. I guess some of it is like I don't know that I care to watch a show about like the government wasting money because that's what happens. You know, like that's, that's kind of like, you know, that, you know, and, and in the show it's, it's made to be funny about like, you know, or, or a moving moment about why they send an orange to space and it costs, you know, a hundred thousand dollars or I, you know, there's a whole sequence about that. I'm like, oh, I don't know. Like it's funny, I guess, but I don't know. Maybe it's the context of, you know, that, that this is like a real thing that. 
Donald Trump is trying to do uh, in li- in real life. Uh, that's maybe not so funny, but um, for the amount of people involved with it and like who's creating it, it just it's kind of a, a bummer for me. Like it, it's just not as funny or as interesting as I thought it would be. Um, Aaron seemed to like it a little more than I did, but um, overall, it's definitely not not anything impressive in my eyes. There was another one that I, I wanted to mention. I, I finally came back around to watching, which was um USA series called Briar Patch. Hmm. Um, oh, yeah. Did yeah, you ever watch show, that? Man. Yeah, I, I thought that was pretty good, man. I, I thought that was really good. I, I'm, I'm like halfway through. I'm watching a lot of stuff. So after you talk about this, I want to rattle off the ones. But yeah, man, I'm, I'm like four episodes into it. And it is done really well. Yeah. I, I liked it a lot. It's a really well-made show, and uh, I love Rosario Dawson, uh, and she's really great in the show. And J.R. Ferguson, who I haven't seen in anything recently at all, is really great in the show, too. Um, uh, it's just a cool, like, kind of show that exists in the same kind of, you know, world, like a Fargo. It's got, like, a Coen Brothers touch to it, or, like, a, like a, even, like, a Better Call Saul. Like, it's it's got that kind of tone to it. Um but I thought it was pretty good. It kind of it kind of doesn't doesn't stick the landing perfectly um, through the first like seven episodes. I thought it was like great, and you know it ends it ends pretty strong. But um, I definitely recommend checking it out. I mean, if anybody hadn't heard of it or you know never got around to seeing it, um, it's on USA, and uh, I think uh, Andy Greenwald is the showrunner for it, who is a host of another podcast I listen to called The Watch. But um, it was cool to finally get around to watching the show that, you know, he kind of created. I think Sam Esmail, the guy who does uh, Mr. Ro- or, uh, Mr. Robot, is also a producer on it, too. So it's got, got that touch to it as well. Yeah, it's cool. I, I thought it was pretty good. Cool, cool. You know, <clears throat> the only thing we've really watched that's new, um, we've watched a lot of uh, Golden Girls and Seinfeld, <laughs> Unsolved Mysteries. <laughs> But the um the only thing that we've watched that was new was the uh, the Epstein docu series on on Netflix and uh, you know I, I don't know if there's much to say about that except that it's yet another thing where it ends and you kind of feel like justice has not been served. Right. Um, there's still a lot of people connected to him that are that are not dead and who are not I don't know I mean I guess the investigation continues but the the um. You know, the the series kind of stopped short of really delving into the more salacious questions you might have about the way that story ended. You know, you're watching that with your wife and you're like sitting across the room from each other. It's not a very, it's not a very uh, enjoyable thing to do. Uh, so I would say, unless you're curious about the details, you don't, you don't necessarily need this. Um, it's another Netflix thing that might be an hour longer than it needed to be. So, uh Hulu accessible things. I've been watch, I've been watching season two of Rami. Um, I'm about five episodes in. It, somehow it's better than the first season. It gets this is a little darker and and heavier, but it's a really really good show. Um, worth checking out. Uh, Beauty and a Baker. I've kind of talked about before. It's kind of this cutesy story about a baker that meets a person that's along the lines of like Kim Kardashian. He falls in love with her and he starts dating her, and it's it's a fun show about uh, a baker that works for a family business that is thrust in fame and he's dealing with kind of the consequences of all of that while still trying to maintain a normal life. Really good show. HBO stuff. I'm watching Insecure. 
and I've kind of talked about it before, the Moshe Kesher, Kesher produced show Betty, that's kind of along the lines of kids. It's really well done. It follows a bunch of women skaters in New York. Uh, it is so well done, man. It, it feels like it's a documentary, but there's acting. It, it's it's kind of cool what they've managed to do with it. Um, I've told you about Robbie, uh, which is uh, free on YouTube right now. Uh, it's I've watched the show. Not I mean I I'm not even exaggerating. Aaron and I have watched the Rory Scoville show Robbie maybe seven times straight, all the way through. And that doesn't include just random episodes that we find funny. He's so great. And and, and Mary Holland, who's on that show, is also very funny. Mm. The whole season is up on YouTube for free. Is that is that the case? Yeah, the whole season, all eight episodes are up on there. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's just a light show with, I mean, it has some heavy elements to it, but it's a fun show to watch. And you will laugh at least a little bit throughout each episode. I laugh a ton. I love how ridiculous he is as a person um it's a little more subtle there aren't just like straight uh like big jokes but a lot of it is in the dialogue how absurd some of the dialogue is and the things that he he says to his friends and family on a pretty regular basis um i can relate to on a real level um and then and then uh, i've taught i championed this show to the end of the earth and that is the harley quinn show uh the cartoon version of Carly Quinn's story. Uh, season one is now on Sci-Fi. Um, if you want to check it out, if you have on demand and stuff like that. Season two is now running on um, the DC network. There's a really interesting story, I do not want to spoil it, involving two members of the cast that is something that I've never seen tackled in a cartoon ever in my life. Uh, and it's done really well. And uh, I just think that they're doing what, what I thought the Harley Quinn movie was going to do. This cartoon is doing. Um, and it has Batman's in it, Bane's in it, Superman's in it, Wonder Woman's in it. It has everybody from the DCU in some way or another is sprinkled throughout this cartoon and, and made fun of in a way that doesn't feel like it's taken away from their brand and still kind of makes you wonder like man why didn't i think about that about this character uh it's just a really well done show aren't they doing bold things too like killing the penguin or is that a spoiler but i, oh, I, I mean i've heard i've heard some crazy shit about that about characters that have been getting offed on that show i love that cartoon man <laughs> that's all i'm gonna say it's my favorite thing on tv right now wow yeah all right well that's a lot of talking right there that's what we did there. Yeah. just a lot of talking uh, you guys have, if, you, if you're good, don't have anything else to throw out there. Um, let's wrap it up. Uh, movieshmovie.com. You can find past episodes, facebook.com slash movieshmovie. We post them there as well. If you have any feedback on anything that we discussed in this episode, feel free to uh, let us know on the comments on Facebook is probably the best place to reach us. And, uh, yeah, we'll probably get together next week and talk about something new. Um, there's a couple exciting titles coming out this month. I uh, know, uh, what do you got? Like, the new Twilight Zone comes out this month. Season 2, Jordan Peele produced. Um, a lot of horror filmmakers that are making episodes this season. I'm excited to see and talk about. Yeah. Spike Lee's got The Five Bloods coming out on Netflix. That's going to be fun. I can't wait to see that. The trailer dropped for that. It looks great. Um, I don't know. There's a couple other things I know that I had seen that I was excited to talk about, and those are the only two that really popped in my mind right now. But... Um, 
We'll find some stuff to talk about, guys. I'm sure. I, I don't doubt that. <laughs> there is no doubt at all. <clears throat> but otherwise, you guys have anything else to throw down, or are we good? I just want to say that I love you guys. <clears throat> I love you guys, too, man. Thank you so much for opening up and, and again, letting us know that we can do more. Yeah. Well, thanks, man. I, I seriously appreciate it. Thank you. So we'll see you next week. And as always, you've made our day. Bye.